I have to turn to it first here this morning. Make sure I'm not the last person there. Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning. I was praying earlier this morning and just thinking about all the different things that we could be doing throughout the week. How many of those things would be more enjoyable than getting together with people of like precious faith? Now, when we're not thinking right, that may not be true. When we're not thinking right, there's maybe a long list of things that you'd even rather be doing this morning. But when we're thinking correctly, all the different things that take up our time throughout the week, some of them are obligatory. We have to do them. They're, they're mandatory. There's really no way around them. Okay, And often those things, they're not that enjoyable, but just a part of living life where it's not that every, everything is something you're necessarily looking forward to. But you think of all those things that are taking up all of that time. What, what would be more enjoyable than saying, we have this common faith in a risen Savior who has done everything for us and is wanting to empower and lead and direct our lives and live life with us. And he's, he saw fit to give us one another where we wouldn't have to be on an island. We wouldn't have to be going through our lives, our, our spiritual journeys. We wouldn't be doing that alone. Now some of you say, well, it'd be nice to just have a, a partner who had the same mentality. I could be going through life with them. Now, some of you maybe are blessed that that's the case. Praise the Lord. I, I hope that's something that you're praising the Lord for. There's many others that don't experience that. But for those of you who aren't experiencing that, where you say, I don't have that, that, that intimate relationship in my life where together we're just moving forward and we're being led and directed by the Lord in our lives. We're, we're thinking the same way. We have the same mentality about the things that matter most because they're being informed by a spiritual perspective of the Spirit of God working inside of us, and together we're kind of pulling in the same direction. Okay, well, maybe you don't have that, but you still have this. You still have an extended family of faith. And the only requirement, I had mentioned to a couple this morning, the only requirement for entrance into that family is, have you accepted by faith the offer of salvation that God makes through the person and work of his son, as Jesus Christ was willing to do for you what you could never do for yourself, and that was to die on Calvary and pay the debt of your sin so that you could experience a new life with God and a forever part of his family, not on the basis of what you had done for God, but on the basis of what he had done for you. And so when we gather as a family of people, who have made a decision at some point in our lives to accept by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us and hopefully want to walk by faith and live life as a, a people of faith, letting God work and direct in our lives and we can come together for these moments here on a Sunday morning. Is there anything better? Is there anything that, that, that should be better than that in our mindset? Man, we should have church services every day. Who's in? Let's have a word of prayer before I end up preaching too much and we miss out on this whole message. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend together. Thank you for these one another's that you've put in our life. Pray that if we don't know them very well, if we're new to this church or maybe we've been here a while but we haven't really been connecting or investing in people, uh, sort of reaching out and being intentional, not mechanical, but intentional as we're being prayerful about you wanting to make us a tight-knit group. Pray that we would even just see the value of having been here this morning, being able to say hi to a few people, greet a few people, introduce ourselves to some people, catch up with some people we haven't seen in a while, maybe even make some plans to get together with some people, again, not mechanically, but just as you work in our lives and show us how blessed we are to have one another. Pray that you would make us a body of believers that remains focused on your truth, that wants to be a reflection of your light into the community around us. Pray that you would remind us that that's not something we do in our own strength. We do that through depending on you to work in and through our lives to make 
your message known, to declare your message of hope to those who are hopeless and helpless and ultimately hellbound if they don't hear about how much you love them and how you've made a way for them to be with you through the sacrifice of your son Jesus as you died, were buried, and rose again for sinners. Not just, not just some sinners, all sinners, and all types of sinners as we're looking at here in these first chapters of the book of Romans. Pray that you'd give me wisdom as I speak this morning so that what is said would be accurate and clear. Pray that you'd even give open ears and understanding and wisdom to those taking in the message so that it could be useful and practical in their lives. Pray for the youth ministries that are going on right now by virtue of Sunday school gatherings and also the youth group gathering after church. Pray that it would be profitable. Pray that everything that is said and done here today would lift you up, put the spotlight on you, and make you bigger in our minds and in the minds of those around us. Thank you again for all you do for us and your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, this morning's sermon title is Judged by Your Deeds. Judged by Your Deeds. And you'll see that this is some language that could be problematic if you were to take it out of its context. So often if people are seeking to prove a particular point or to stand for a particular principle, if they rob it from its context, oftentimes it makes those passages or those phrases seem like they stand for something that they don't. Thank you. Thankfully, we don't, we're not given the Bible in piecemeal fashion. We're not given the Bible on index cards that are all shuffled together and thrown at us. We're given the Bible in the context of whole books and whole letters that together formulate one story that God wanted to tell us that had a beginning, middle, and end, starting with creation and Genesis and cohesively running through this story of God and his revelation to man, a story of redemption, a story of God's rescue plan for mankind as God reveals himself, but ultimately primarily focuses on how he's going to restore, reconcile, and redeem a fallen mankind, as we read about in the beginning chapters, Genesis chapter 3, and by the end we have God settling all accounts in the book of Revelation, how he's finally going to make everything right that was broken to begin with. We know that the climax of this storyline is a story that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree. We know that the story is pointing toward, building towards, and working towards that climax. How there, God is going to have a way to rescue mankind that involves the sacrifices of, of his own son, Jesus Christ, which we read about here, even in John 3.16 on the wall. For God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And you say, does the Bible really climax at that point? Yes, that's what it's building towards? Does the story continue thereafter? Yes. Does God have some promises yet to be fulfilled? Yes. But the story is one of rescue, redemption, about God being a faithful God, a gracious God, a loving God, who ultimately wants to undertake to make it possible for man, though having been estranged from him due to sin, to be reconciled to him through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what this letter to Romans is doing. So as we think about this context that we're going to come across this phrase, being judged, or God is going to render to each according to his deeds, but judged by your deeds. Now as I thought about that section and how somewhat difficult that might be to wrap your mind around when we're a church that consistently is preaching that there is no salvation apart from the gracious intervention of God on man's behalf. There is no salvation by works. And Romans is perhaps one of the clearest places you could go in the Bible to prove that point, that there is no salvation by work or by working for God, that it's going to be as a result of God's grace, grace applied and appropriated by faith, meaning being persuaded to trust that what God says is true. But this title does represent the natural human standard and perspective judged by your deeds. This is the normal basis by which everything in the natural realm is determined. Success and acceptance in this life is based on performance. It's based on accomplishment. And that's always performance relative to other people. Accomplishment relative to other people. And this is true as you think about success and acceptance, again, by people. It's true in the context of many different areas of life. 
couple of examples for you are, it's true in relationships that oftentimes acceptance or the success of that relationship is judged or determined by accomplishment. It's determined by performance. It's determined by what have you done for me lately. You see, human beings do not grasp grace naturally. Human beings by nature are wired with a mentality that says me first, prioritizing self, self self-focused, self-centeredness. And so when that's true, and it is true, and if you're honest with yourself, you'd admit that that was true in your nature, by nature, not the, the divine nature, but the human nature, that that's true. Well, when that's true, naturally then we gauge everything, even relationships, in terms of how are you performing? What have you been doing lately? How are you making my life better? What do you add to this equation? What do you bring to the table? And based on those determinations, then I'll determine whether or not you're acceptable to me as in terms of relationship, and others will determine whether you're acceptable to them. And you see that happen all the time. Another example would be performance-driven evaluation or being judged by your deeds as it relates to even athletic endeavors. Now, some of us are getting to the point of being past athletic endeavors. It's, you wouldn't really call them athletic endeavors anymore. Well, maybe endeavors, but they wouldn't be athletic achievements anymore. They would just be endeavors. But as you grow up, you know, me being more of a sports guy and coaching even junior high girls basketball, as all of you by now know, or most of you know that, oftentimes your sense of accomplishment your sense of success, it's driven by your deeds or your performance. What are you able to do on the actual playing surface? And I was at the section swim meet finals yesterday watching all of these young men doing the very best that they could to feel like they had accomplished something. And those efforts were gauged against other people's efforts and those that were the fastest were then ranked accordingly and they even took a series of different steps of a podium platform where eighth place is standing on the ground. They mention 16th place through ninth place and then they get to the top eight are going to be awarded a medal. Now that poor eighth guy, he doesn't even get a step to step on. He's literally standing on the pool deck. And I thought, that's kind of like, can't you just add one more step so he feels like he took one step up from everyone else? And then each step is a little bit higher until you get to the section champion. Now, that's a part of life. I was very happy to see my nephew Cole Lehman was had a very successful day, judged relative to everyone who was there that day to compete against. He was able to get four first place medals, two on relays, and two on his individual events. You know, my son, who's in seventh grade, though, he had a 13th place finish. There's not an award given for that. It's mentioned, and you were ahead of everybody else who didn't qualify, But your performance in everybody's eyes that was there was judged by comparing your actions, what you're able to accomplish, to everyone else. That's normal. That's the sports world. How about employment? In a normal employment situation where it's not flawed, people's success or their promotion is driven by measuring their their performance to other people who are on the team, who are employed there. And those that perform the best are normally, I say normally because there's human flaws to this, but normally they're promoted, judged by your deeds. Another just normal example of that in everyday life. How about in school? How about in hobbies even? Can you imagine being judged by your performance even in your hobbies? Something that's supposed to be relaxing, but yet your neighbors are walking by, evaluating what your yard looks like. This is supposed to be a hobby, but they're taking a look at how things are looking. And we know that many of you were saved out of faith systems that evaluated 
spiritual success based on performance. How often are you in church? Maybe even take an attendance. Okay, before you leave today, make sure you stop by the attendance. <laughs> we're keeping track too. No. Uh, you're, you were in a system maybe where your performance, your success spiritually was determined by how much money you gave or whether or not you had jumped through some other hoops or, or rituals, whether or not you'd gone through different steps in the process. So that's normal. It's normal to be judged based on those things in a world that's based on comparing ourselves to others. That's the natural mentality. And in truth, God also judges people. He makes judgments. Now, his judgments are absolutely perfect, but he judges people, but he judges them not relative to each other. He, do, he judges them relative to his standard. See, so many people, when it comes to spiritual matters, they are trained to think like this, comparison to others, success compared to others, but God says, no, your spiritual success isn't driven by a comparison to others. It's being judged against my standard of what is right. And of course, God's standard is perfect righteousness or sinlessness. So every person at some point, when it comes to God's judgment, at some point they'll be judged. And determined to be either righteous or unrighteous. Now those found to be unrighteous are going to be sentenced accordingly. Think about this in a, in a criminal courtroom set, uh, setting where there'll be a hearing. There'll be a trial conducted. There will be w witnesses, there'll be evidence offered in favor of and against you. And in that context, God is going to render a judgment. And that judgment is going to be one of two things. It's either going to be righteous or unrighteous. And then the unrighteous are going to be sentenced accordingly. Now the Bible teaches this, that anyone who places his or her faith in Jesus Christ is identified immediately, positionally with Christ. And right then, they have their evaluation, so to speak. Because at that moment that they make a decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're found to be... They're declared judicially to be righteous in God's sight. Now imagine this. You're going along through life. You've been focused on self-righteousness, making yourself righteous, making yourself viewed to be successful as it relates to other people in the spiritual realm. But God doesn't operate that way. God, we're going to see through all of these lessons we're having up through chapter 3, verse 20, that all mankind are sinners, all people are unrighteous, all people are guilty, all people deserve God's judgment. And so, but you're going along kind of naive to that, thinking that somehow you could make yourself right with God on the basis of religious rituals or on the basis of human effort. And, and none of that has been successful, but somebody comes along at some point and clarifies your thinking and says, no, the Bible teaches that none are righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's not one just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Somebody tells you that. And you're like, you know what? I kind of knew that anyway. Right? When you're being honest, you kind of knew that anyway. You were, you were hoping these efforts and these religious rituals would carry you through. But you kind of knew that you were in a predicament, right? You kind of knew that you wouldn't stack up to any close scrutiny. You know, maybe from a, a thousand feet back, you'd look okay. Call that the thousand foot view. But when you come up close, anyone who's being honest and is being confronted with this message, they know. They know the heart. They know the inside. They know the thoughts. They know the secrets. They know the skeletons in the closet, right? So you're confronted with this message, and if you're being honest in those moments, you're kind of like, yeah, I knew that. But isn't that a hopeless message then, that everybody is broken, nobody measures up to God's standard, that nobody could earn God's approval or favor? Yeah, but thankfully that's not the end of the message. The message of the Bible doesn't end with that. And so when somebody then told you, but despite this need that you have, there's hope and it can be found in not your work, but the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf as he would take all of your sins and bear all your shame and bear all your iniquity and the father would place all of that condemnation on his dearly beloved son who would die on Calvary in your place and take care of all of your need 
in all of your brokenness. And they said, if you would just accept and put your faith and confidence in what Jesus Christ has already done for you, as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, that I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. That Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become right with God or the righteousness of God through him. Him being the mechanism for our salvation. And they explain that to you. The Bible says that at the moment, your mind accepts that as true. That there's nothing you can do. It's all been done already for you. The moment that you rest in that and accept that, the Bible says that moment you are adopted into God's family. You are sealed by God's spirit. You are placed in Christ that he will never let you go. But at that very moment, something happens in this courtroom in heaven, so to speak. This is theoretical. At that very moment, your trial takes place in terms of the penalty of your sin. And God says, you are now righteous. You're judicially declared to be right with me because of your faith in the finished work of my son. So you've already then been found to be right with God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is now credited to your account. So your account is now once and forever in good standing with God in terms of the penalty of sin. Because Christ's righteousness has now now taken your delinquent account and made it in good standing with God. And that's a forever thing. God says, though we are faithless at times, yet God remains faithful too. It says, though a, a good man may fall, he will not be utterly cast down because God is holding him in his hands. He says, nothing can separate you from my love. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them as a gift eternal life and they will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck them out of my hand. There you are in the hand of Jesus Christ. My father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them from my father's hand. There you are doubly secure in the hands of Jesus Christ and the father. And he says, I'll never let you go. But that moment you were already judged. You were judged to be right with God. You were judicially declared to be right with God and nothing will ever change that. So when we're thinking about God's judgment, this evaluation that will be taking place in the future, this is not for those who have already believed. They've already been found to be righteous on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. This evaluation that we're going to be looking at today is a future evaluation as it relates to unbelievers, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one of two outcomes that are possible, one that God will evaluate and judge you according to your deeds, and he'll find you to be righteous, or he'll find you to be unrighteous. Now, we already know the punchline. We, we already can skip forward and know that every single trial will end the same way. Everyone will be given a fair shake. But the conclusion will be the same for every single unbeliever. Unrighteous, 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 unrighteous. Because when you're judged according to your deeds, your deeds fall short of God's standard. God's standard is perfect righteousness. God's standard is not a relative human standard comparing to other people and good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. God's evaluation is that there is none who is good and that all deserve God's judgment and wrath, but only those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and have had God's wrath poured out on Jesus Christ can now be set free on the basis of what Christ has done for them. Now that's what we're working towards here today as we're looking at this section that talks about these possibilities, that there's going to be this evaluation in that sense. So all of those who reject the salvation that Jesus offers, they're going to face God's judgment in the future, but that's going to involve being evaluated on the basis of their deeds. Unfortunately, their deeds, Paul is saying by the time he gets to 320, he's made it crystal clear, their deeds are going to condemn them. Their deeds are going to condemn them. And we're talking about this future evaluation at the great white throne judgment. Now in terms of a little bit of building us up to this point, unless you, if, if you haven't been here in our series, we started Romans by identifying the general theme as the gospel of salvation, but we noted that the gospel message was said to reveal, at least in part, the righteousness of God. Take a look at chapter 1, 
just want to refresh your mind, and I know not all of you have been here, so I just want you to see this. Verse 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That is what this letter is about. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, it's that simple. You either believe in what Jesus has done or you don't. If you don't, the reality is you're putting your confidence in something else or someone else besides him. But it's available regardless of ethnicity to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, what are we talking about with it? The gospel, for in it, the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's only through faith that we can appropriate God's righteousness, which can make us just in God's eyes and put us in a right standing with a holy and righteous God. And that's what Paul has been getting at. Now, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 and running through 320, Paul's letter has started to explain the dilemma that humanity faces as it relates to God's righteous standard. And the whole thing that Paul is building toward is that man lacks the righteousness he needs. In order to earn salvation through your own merit, you would have to be perfectly righteous just like God is righteous. And so the issue is that in order to be right with God, you need to have God's kind of righteousness. But what he's been proving here through this introduction through the 20th verse of chapter 3 is you don't have that. So Houston, we have a problem. You lack something that you desperately need. And that's what he's been getting at. So then we move to chapter 1 verse 24 through verses verse 32, and we, aver- we observe the universal nature of man's lack of righteousness. We looked at all of these various illustrations of man's rejection of God as expressed in that section via or through overt immorality. O- overt immorality. The point was that as you read through these lists of things as sort of obvious as sexual immorality, but as sort of Subtle as being covetous, meaning wanting what other people have or jealous of other people. Full of envy is another way that was described. How about other things like being a whisperer, a gossip? How about being a backbiter, somebody who's trying to undermine somebody else's reputation? Happens all the time. How about being proud, though? We talked about how many times that's found in the Bible, how that's in this list. Being proud. How about being disobedient to parents? But then I loved verse 31, being undiscerning. Who couldn't raise their hand to that? That you just have lacked discernment, been foolish in your thinking at times. Untrustworthy? Shouldn't every hand go up? That you haven't followed through with something that you should have done or had promised even to do? Unloving? Every hand should be raised. Unforgiving? Every hand should be raised. Unmerciful? Every hand should be raised. And the point is, this is overt immorality. These things go against what God says that we should be like. What God says are right. But the point was to show that all men have this universal lack of righteousness and are unrighteous. Then we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 last week. And we considered man's rejection of God, not as expressed through overt immorality, but as expressed through self-righteousness. And we looked at this man that's being described as an example of a group of people that look at those lists from 24 through 32 and they don't find any wrongdoing on their part. So then he starts out and he says to the self-righteous man, are you kidding? No, that's actually what it says. Are you kidding? No, it doesn't say that. That's the short version of one through five. Are you kidding? You're judging other people according to a standard that you yourself don't keep. You hypocrite. It's like Jesus says when he speaks to the self-righteous religious men of his day who were called Pharisees or Sadducees was another group. What does he say to them? He calls them all kinds of really fun and loving things like you pit of vipers, you brood of vipers. You're double-tongued. He, he says to them, you're whitewashed sepulchers. Y- you look white on the outside, but you're a rotting corpse on the inside. He says it to their faces that that's his evaluation 
of their mentality. That's the kind of people, to a certain extent, we're talking about here and continuing on into the section about the religious Jewish-minded person who is following the law or trying to keep the traditions of man and the laws of God as a basis for trying to prove that relative to other people, they deserve God's favor. And Paul's going to shoot that down here as we keep going. So one through five, talk to the, are you kidding, self-righteous crowd. Now we're going to pick up and see that all men, including these self-righteous that are in the immediate context, who reject Jesus Christ, all men are going to be judged in the future on the basis of their works or deeds, and they're ultimately going to face God's wrath. Now, who are we talking about? We're talking about people that have rejected the offer of salvation. That's who we're talking about. Let's pick up in verse 6. Verse 6, who will render, back up to verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness, he's talking to the self-righteous person, in accordance with the hardness in your impenitent, meaning unchanging heart, you are treasuring up for yourself. You think that you deserve God's goodness, but in fact, because you haven't changed your thinking or accepted your brokenness, you're actually treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, which we identified as the future great white throne judgment. Now God is going to, in that day, render to each one according to his deeds, verse 6, verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he's going to reward them or the judgment is going to lead to the condemnation of indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil of the Jew first, meaning this is going to apply to everyone, Jew first and also the Greek, but honor, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. Connect back to even verse 70, he's talking about those who are patient and continual in doing good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That would be possible evaluation. For verse 11, for there is no partiality with God, meaning he's a fair judge. He doesn't prefer others over some, some over others. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned, now that's everyone without the law, shall also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by it. He's building a case towards that's everybody who is a sinner. Those who had the law are sinners. Those who ha- did not have the law, they're also sinners. But for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Meaning, if you could completely keep every facet of the law, you could be declared to be righteous before God. He's going to say that that's not possible, though. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That day again we're going to see is in reference to the, the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will be judged by their deeds. There's only two options. You're either going to be judged in terms of your acceptance of Jesus Christ and on the basis of your faith, so it's justification by faith, or you're going to be judged according to your works or your deeds. So let's pack up to verse 6 and unpack this a little bit. I missed some of this stuff. Who will render to each one according to his deeds? And who are referring to God here? Those who reject Jesus still get a fair trial is the idea here. And it refers back to the righteous judgment of God in verse 6. He's talking about you are facing, and he's talking to the self-righteous person, in this day of wrath, you're facing the righteous judgment of God. Even though you think you're right with God because you're full of yourself, you're not and you're facing God's judgment. His judgment is going to be based on rendering to each one according to his deeds. Now this represents the standard of judgment for those who reject Jesus Christ. The believer or the child of God never faces God's judgment. We have to remember that. God's justice was already satisfied the moment of faith as God was satisfied by the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the moment we appropriate that sacrifice by faith in what he's already done for us, again, we're judicially declared to be right with God. Now, those who have rejected God, though, they're judged according to their own deeds. These deeds, of course, referencing not just their actions, but also their 
proper or improper thinking during life. And Paul's explaining what is necessary to be right with God, now catch this, apart from faith in Jesus. He's building towards a case that the only solution or the only hope that man has is faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. There is no salvation available by works. But he's explaining this is what would need to be true if you wanted to be right with God apart from faith. You would have to be, and we're going to get into this, perfectly righteous. Here Paul is beginning this interesting argument. If somebody could be good enough, if somebody could be perfect, God would declare them righteous on that basis. But the problem is that nobody exists like that. And that's the point that Paul is creatively working his way to. Now look at verse 7. We're going to look at 7 and we're going to look at 10 because they really go together. And then we're going to see that a couple of other verses pair up out of sequence because he says the same thing twice basically. But verse 7 he says, now this is as he's judging, these are, this is one theoretical outcome that's possible from this judgment at the great white throne judgment of those that are, have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. One option, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now look at verse 10. The first part of verse 10, another statement of the same outcome. Glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. A theoretical outcome at that judgment. If, if somebody could do that, then this is what the outcome would be. Now, I do want to have this caveat. This is a difficult section of Scripture. In this context, I don't see how he can be talking about anything else, but some people do come up with alternative ideas about this. You judge for yourself based on this, on this context. But here we have the first of these two theoretical outcomes. Now, we have this impartial judge who is going to render this final judgment. And one of those hypothetical outcomes is eternal life. We see that in verse 7. Eternal life to those, and then the standard is laid out. And then we see in verse 10, glory, honor, and peace, and then the standard is laid out to whoever works what is good. In verse 7, to whoever is in patient, by patient continuance in doing good, seeks after the right things. The outcome would be eternal life. They would be declared to be right with God, and the outcome of that would be they would be entitled through their works, they'd be entitled to a spot in heaven. But how is that outcome achieved? We see the two statements here again. By patient continuance in doing good and by working what is good. And the idea is, if God were to judge such a person, somebody who was able to do those things, he'd render them worthy of eternal life. God would be fair about that. But we know from looking forward to the conclusion of this section, in the first part of even chapter 3, that continually doing good or working what, it, what is good without ever failing is impossible. So Paul is, again, building toward the conclusion that man is justified only by faith. And here I want to show you how one author, one author puts this. This is a guy named C.I. Schofield, but he, many people are familiar with even his study Bible, but C.I. Schofield's note says this, the cases here, these examples are hypothetical. Paul is not teaching the possibility of salvation by works, but is rather showing why all men without exception are lost. Remember the purpose of what he's building on here. You can't just completely strip this section of the context. The context all the way through 320 is that there is none righteous, no, not one. That's the, the thing that Paul is building or the conclusion Paul is building too. Now, as he later states, no man has continued in doing good, nor is he a doer of the law. We see that when you, by the time you get to verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. The means of justification for sinners entirely by faith in Christ is set forth and then you see how much of this letter is going to then be focused on how the only way that a sinner could ever be justified is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. So we move to verses 8 and 9 here. But to those who are self-seeking, here's our other, alt, other possible evaluation. But to those who are self-seeking, and we know this is everyone, 
all seek their own and not the things of Christ, though that's written to believers. It's written about believers. It's certainly true of unbelievers too. The Bible tells us that man by nature despises God's truth, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Most of you probably are aware that those are the verses that come right after John 3.16. John 3.17 is God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Verse 18 says, he who believes is not condemned, but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's only a lack of believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ that can condemn a man. All of man's sin has already been taken care of. If all of man's sin was died for, paid for on Calvary, what sin remains for you to pay for or atone for? None. So the issue isn't, are you a sinner, though that is ultimately what does condemn you. The end result is that the condemnation comes from, though your sins have been paid for, rejecting the solution or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover or pay for your sins as he nailed them to the cross. Anyway, the next verse after that says, this is the record of the condemnation that light has come into the world, but that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Man is not desperately seeking after God. That's what Paul will get to in chapter three. That there's none righteous, there's none that's seeking after God. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as we come back to this, here we have our second possibility. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness. We've just seen from verses 24 through 32 of chapter 1 that that's everybody. What will the just penalty be or the sentence be? God's indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, uh, and anguish on every soul who is identified still with the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of Adam, the brokenness of the sin nature. So, here we have the other, the reverse of this hypothetical trial that man is facing. The one potential outcome or result is declared to be righteous because of perfect righteousness or continually doing what was good. The other hypothetical outcome, man is determined to be guilty. And every person found to be unrighteous faces condemnation and punishment. And remember, those are the only two outcomes, righteous and unrighteous. These individuals are described in, in several ways here. They're self-seeking. They don't obey the truth. Instead of what? Obeying, um, instead of obeying unrighteousness, they do that instead of obeying the truth. And we saw in chapter one about how man has a tendency to suppress the truth as a part of the rebellion against God. We saw in verse 25, they exchange God's truth for lies. That's what man does by nature. They don't want to know the truth. That's why the Bible says you shall know the truth, principle, not text. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You have to know the truth first in order for the truth to set you free. Now, what are we talking about here? We're talking about putting self first. We're talking about looking out for number one. We're talking about suppressing and exchanging the truth. So as you're thinking about this hypothetical trial for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, who could come away from this thinking that they would be found righteous? if we're just talking about something like self-seeking, how arrogant would you need to be if God condemns self-seeking behavior? How, how arrogant would you need to be to think that you would go stand before the Lord on the basis of a lifetime of self-seeking behavior and that God would somehow find you to be righteous? Any honest person would say, no way. There's no way that I'm going to go stand before the Lord on the basis of myself. But yet many do. Mentally, they say, God's going to give me heaven because I deserve it. It's a reward for doing good instead of a gift that God is offering to sinners who do not deserve it because he loves them and is so gracious. The expected conclusion here is that all are guilty. All need to be rescued. But remember, in this context, of verses one through five, Paul is addressing the self-righteous man who thinks he is doing good as a general rule, at least as compared to those he is judging. Paul is addressing the type of person who would have been cheering for this statement of judgment based on works. They'd have said, that's what I thought all along and I'm in pretty good shape. I hope God judges me according to my works because I'm so much better than the rest of you. 
That's the person he's talking to in verses 1 through 5. The, the, the self-righteous, and we're going to get to, he goes on to say, religious-minded man. The self-righteous, religious-minded man that is actually going around thinking, I hope God's standard is that he's going to judge me according to my works. I'm a pretty good guy. Compared to who? Layman? Okay, I'll, I'll grant you that. Compared to me, maybe. But that's not God's standard. You don't have to be better than me. You have to be perfectly righteous. It's such a compelling case when you actually read God's word to see how much we needed a savior. You see, the self-righteous people that you come across, and it's ourselves at times, we believe that we deserve God's favor. In the context of justification, they believe that they deserve or have earned a right to heaven. And it's all because they're using the wrong standard. And that's why Paul keeps building and expanding on this argument. Now we come to, we already covered verse 10a. The first part of 10a was talking about the potential outcome to the one who is working what is good. Working what is good. But now we're going to talk about how fair God is. As he applies this judgment to everyone, regardless of ethnicity. And this is just one example. God is not concerned about male or female, bond or free, rich or poor, old or young, Jew or Gentile. He's concerned about, have you accepted and believed in my son? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Because both of these sections, though, tie in and talk about God's impartiality. That's why I put in verse 10b here about to the Jew first and also of the Greek with verse, the rest of what leads up to verse 12 and then also the conclusion, verse 16. Because verses 13 through 15, if you look in your Bible, they very often, most Bibles will have a bracket around that section. It's a parenthetical, meaning it's inserted in there sort of as a standalone thought but it actually breaks up the, the actual thought. This is the actual finishing thought. To the Jew first and also of the Greek, now that's a repeat of what we even saw at the end of verse nine. For there is no partiality with God. This is the point here. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So what is the issue here, folks? The law or not the law? No, the, the issue is sin, are you a sinner? Because all I have sinned is what he's building towards. Now, they will judge by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. See, Paul ends verse 10 and continues into verse 11 by explaining that impartial justice is available to all regardless of race, ethnicity, and those other things. Now, remember, there's some ethnic tension in this church between Jews and Gentiles. We're going to get into that more so. It'll come out more so as we work through the book. And we'll even see that as we talk about the salvation that God offers, there's going to be a whole section that is specifically addressed to the national salvation of national Israel in verses chapters 9 through 11. But there's some tension here as Jews had been driven out of Rome. Gentiles had taken more prominent roles within the church. Jewish people had started to trickle back into Rome. And there was this tension between the Jewish people who, frankly, had a superiority complex as it related to having been entrusted with God's law, having been chosen as God's people, having been blessed and given covenant promises through Abraham and David and even a covenant through Moses. But as you think about that, in, in one sense, it was a great advantage to them. But it also caused them to look down at other people. You saw that even in, in Jesus's day as there was a negative view of Samaritans who were partially Jew, Jewish, where Jewish people wouldn't even go through the area that the Samaritans lived in. And Jesus, of course, went out of his way to go through Samaria for the purpose of having a divine appointment with a woman at a well. You remember that story? If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. To all those who think you can lose your salvation, explain that passage to me. Having drunk of this water, meaning point in time, you have a drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Not as long as you keep sitting here by the well and tipping back the cold ones. As long as you keep sucking down that cold water every day, then you'll never thirst again. No. 
Whoever drinks of this water, point in time, will never thirst again. This isn't something you can lose because you can only be born once. You're either born into God's family or you're not. And it all happens at a moment of faith. Either I decide to put my trust in Jesus Christ or I don't. So what's he getting at? There's no bias, there's no preference, there's no favoritism with God. A summary would be that all sinners are going to be judged. Jews are going to be judged with the law, Gentiles without the law. And when is that going to be? In the day. And then it refers back to verse 12, and it again refers to the great white throne judgment for unbelievers who have rejected Jesus Christ. Now, what are they going to be judged by? (laughs) This, I think, is wonderful. They're going to be judged by the secrets of men. The secrets of men. It's a subtle jab at, in the context, this self-righteous audience. It's not just the public or the external stuff that condemns. It's also the secret and internal stuff that condemns. You can see how a self-righteous person or even a religious-minded person would need to hear this, right? Because there's this natural tendency to have a a sense of, well, as it relates to the things that I'm doing, I'm always checking off the lists. I'm always minding my P's and Q's, dotting those I's, crossing my T's. From a human evaluation, people would be looking at me and they'd be saying, what a wonderful guy. So he just skips across that. He's already covered that in chapter 1, 24 through 32. Now he says, you self-righteous person, you know that this is going to involve the secrets of men coming to light. Not the stuff everyone knows, the secrets. Who wants to come up and talk about their secrets this morning? The whole point is, the conclusion, all men stand guilty before a righteous God. All men lack a righteousness they desperately need. That's all he's getting at. That's the point. So judgment is ultimately going to be based on receipt or rejection of the gospel. You see that according to my gospel? You either accept the gospel message, the message of good news, or you reject it. That judgment, though, is not going to be based on sin, even though all men are sinners. It's going to be based on the response to the good news message of the gospel. Now let's cover this parenthetical to end. Verses 13 through 15. He says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law. The doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, remember he's talking about in the end of verse 12, how everyone's going to be judged by the law. As many have, as have sinned in the law, and he's talking about those who don't have the law, and now those who have the law, they're going to be judged by the law. Now he says, just having the law by, by itself isn't good enough. You'd have to actually keep the law in order to be justified, is what he's saying. Because he makes this argument now. For when Gentiles, if, if you could just having the law was enough to save you, then everyone would be saved. For when Gentiles, they don't even have the law, but by nature, they do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. What it's saying is that God gave all men a conscience. He gave them an internal awareness of God. We already covered that in the first chapter. He revealed himself by virtue of nature. He revealed himself by virtue of creation. He revealed himself by virtue of conscience. He revealed himself by virtue of Jesus Christ and the revelation of Jesus Christ. He revealed, God revealed himself through his word. And so, Jew or Gentile, man still is, has no excuse to say, I didn't know what God's standard was. You're still going to be judged according to God's standard of what is right because by virtue of conscience, all men have this sense of this is right and that is wrong. And that's what he's really saying here. Those, although not having the law, law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. It's written in man's hearts, even though they weren't given the law or entrusted with the law like the nation of Israel was. Their conscience, that's what we're talking about here, bears witness Meaning their conscience at times accuses them, their conscience at other times excuses them. Meaning you have a guilty conscience sometimes or sometimes you have a clear conscience. This is before you even knew Christ. Man has been given this tool where when you're doing things that are wrong, you feel guilty to a point until you sear it to the point it doesn't bother you anymore. But show of hands, you've all felt that, right? No sinners here. Okay, a couple. 
couple of people were doing what was wrong and they felt their conscience convict them. They felt ugly. They felt dirty. They didn't feel good about it, though they were doing it for self-serving reasons. There was maybe some pleasure even in sin for a season. But did they go home restful, at peace with what they were doing? Not initially. Why is it, do you think, that people on their deathbeds make confessions of all these things that they never owned up to in their lifetime? That whole time, they've had this miserable cycle of being pricked by a guilty conscience. Many crimes end up getting solved right on people's deathbeds where they pull daughters over, sons over, whatever. Uh, this, the last one I read about was daughters. They pulled the daughters over and said, hey, this, this name that I have totally made up, it's an alias. I was a bank robber when I was young and I've been living on the lamb ever since. I just thought you'd want to know that before I died. <laughs> True story. The FBI was finally able to close the case. It was a single bank robbery, but a significant amount of money. The guy never was caught. He was caught in a sense. They caught the truth only because his conscience finally wanted him to want to own up to it on his deathbed. So as you're looking at this, these last section, we have this word for, it acts as because. And it provides this explanation for the previous statement that all unbelieving sinners will be judged on the basis of their works. And one of the points here is that being aware of the Mosaic law without actually keeping the law is of no benefit. The issue is not a lack of access to truth, but rather a lack of righteousness. That's man's issue. So Gentiles are said to have access to God's law, truth, in three ways. It's written in their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts accuse or excuse them. We see that all in verse 15. What's the anticipated conclusion of that, though? They have no excuse either. And then to the Jewish people, you think that your ethnicity or having been entrusted with the law is something that would justify you. You see that at the beginning there? But no, it's keeping the law. Not just part of it, but all of it that could have, that would be the thing that would justify. So Paul is explaining that even though they had access to revelation that others did not, even though they've had access to God's truth, the issue is responding to that truth. And in the context, responding to that truth, especially as it relates to the gospel message. Now, what was the intended takeaway of all of this, this whole section? Even though it's a little bit tricky, some, some sort of difficult phrasing and difficult words, what was the expected takeaway of these 10, 11 verses here? All men are guilty and none have any excuse. See, man has this universal righteousness problem and the underlying issue is that all have sinned. That's true for the overtly immoral. That's true for the self-righteous. That's true for the Jew. That's true for the Gentile. All those who reject the salvation that Jesus offers will face God's judgment in the future and be evaluated on the basis of their deeds. Now, every unbeliever will ultimately be determined to be unrighteous at that judgment. They will be sentenced to the corresponding just result, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And the tragedy is that this outcome is entirely preventable, is entirely avoidable. That's what Paul is building toward. In the coming verses, Paul's going to continue to address the issue of sinfulness despite awareness of the law and participation in religious endeavors. So if you're going to read ahead, starting in verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter and then into chapter 3, you're going to see he just continues to make this point that man has this problem with lacking righteousness due to sinfulness, and that's despite immor overt immorality. That's despite self-righteousness. That's despite awareness of the law. That's despite participation in religious endeavors. Man stands guilty and rightfully deserves God's judgment. And then after all of that sort of bad news and negative news, we'll move on in 321 to a section here about how God declares his solution to meet man's needs. So if you're, if you're getting kind of down about how much can we talk about how man has a problem, 
Well, we're talking about it as much as the Bible's talking about it, and Paul chose to declare three and a half chapters or dedicate three and a half chapters to this. And why do you think he'd need to do that? Because people, people are so easily convinced <laughs> that they're hopeless? Because people are so easily convinced that they can't offer God anything? No, it's because man has this sense that somehow, someway, they could bump the, bump the cards in their favor, that they could sort of give themselves just a little bit of extra advantage, whether it's through morality, whether it's through self-righteousness, whether it's through religious efforts, whether it's through religious rituals, whatever it is. A little bit of what they're hoping for is that I get a little bump out of this compared to everyone else. And God says, the only thing that you need is the salvation that Jesus alone offers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for reminding us that regardless of how you want to skin the cat, all men are guilty before you. All men are sinners. All men have a lack of righteousness that they desperately need. And that we're going to see that that solution is that you're going to provide the righteousness through the imputed righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, as you made us right with you on the basis of your sacrifice and death on our behalf. Pray that if there's anyone here today who's never believed that, that today would be the day they're persuaded. Today would be the day of salvation, that they would just change their thinking and say, you know what? I've never heard it before like that, but I believe that that's true. And if you believe it, then today is your birthday, your spiritual birthday. That very moment, you're born into God's family and he says he'll never let you go. Thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.